life solved. This week, it's World Space Week, and to celebrate, we're diving into a citizen science story that puts everyday people at the heart of understanding our cosmos. It seemed like a good and crazy idea, certainly worth trying, but I think none of us had an idea where we would lead to. In this podcast, we share the amazing research that's happening here at the University of Portsmouth and how it's impacting our lives. But this time, we hear how everyday people, not scientists or academics, but citizens with passion and interest, are revolutionising our understanding of galaxies. I think Galaxy U2 was the first ever citizen science project that truly went to the normal, ordinary public who, you know, just suddenly engaged in this material and knew they could make a difference. What's more, the project we'll hear about today has created insights for citizen-led research across the disciplines and even powered the development of sophisticated artificial intelligence. We're meeting the Portsmouth researchers who joined forces with another university and the public to revolutionise our understanding and analysis of data from outer space. John Wersey spoke to some of the minds behind Galaxy Zoo. Every day, 2.3 million amateur scientists and enthusiasts are combining forces to drive our understanding of diverse subjects forward through this community. The work they do informs papers, classifications and breakthroughs across the scientific world. And its original project was Galaxy Zoo. I was very much interested in analysing galaxies, looking at their properties and seeing, so galaxies that look different, how are they different in their formation histories? And I've been used to working with, you know, tens or a hundred galaxies at most, and then you can look at them at images or whatever data you have, and you can work with those. That's Daniel Thomas, Professor of Astrophysics and Head of the School of Mathematics and Physics here at the University of Portsmouth. Two decades ago, he was wondering how to classify vast amounts of imagery from outer space in order to analyse and better understand galaxies. An enormous turning point in our exploration of the cosmos came in 1992 when the Sloan Digital Sky Survey launched. This revolutionary project used digital camera imaging to map the night sky in incredible detail. Professor Bob Nicholl is today the Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Research and Innovation here at Portsmouth. At the time, he was working with Sloan. Bob explained why the huge amount of data generated by Sloan wasn't the only cutting-edge thing about it. I'm very proud that my colleagues within Sloan said, we're going to make this data available to everybody. And they put it on digital archives that anybody could, could, could access. And that was quite revolutionary in astronomy at the time. You kind of held on to your data. But Sloan was the first time we said, we've got too much of this data. We can't look at it all. We should give it back to the public. And we did. We gave it to everybody. At the time, that seems a crazy thing to do. If you say to somebody, look at 50,000 images and classify them into just one type, early type galaxy, and another spiral galaxy. That seems crazy, but we did it. There was another colleague, Chris Lintot, in Oxford at the time as well. And at some point, we were chatting about this and we're saying, why not ask the public to help? If, if we want to look at hundreds of thousands of images that 
something like SDSS, the Sloan uh, project provides us with. We can't do this alone. Bob and Daniel joined forces with colleagues from the University of Oxford to workshop an idea that put the public at the heart of space science. And um, that's how this very early team formed between Chris and Kevin and Oxford, myself and Bob in Portsmouth. We started to, back in 2007, having these discussions, how can we actually do this? And uh, that's also the, the time the Galaxy Zoo came about, which then evolved into Zooniverse. The first I heard of it, so when I was brought on, Daniel and Chris were talking to me in Patrick Moore's garden. Oh, lovely. So that's the first I heard of it. And it was sort of at an event there. And uh, I remember at the time, you know, they said, well, why don't we just get the public to look at it for us? And it was like, well, it was one of those light bulb moments. It was like that. Wow. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Patrick Moore's garden, eh? The presence of astronomer royalty put a rocket under the idea. Galaxy Zoo launched with a humble website, anticipating years and years of volunteer data crunching ahead. But none of the team were prepared for what happened next. The website was publicised on BBC Six O'Clock News um, just when it went live, and that clearly helped to get to spread the word and get it out. And I remember how we were then in the evening um, hectically on the phone in crisis sitting because the server crashed. So we had so many people interested in it that actually the server that we had set up couldn't even deal uh, with the demand. I think we had 10,000 clicks uh, straight away. It's quickly going into the hundred thousands and none of us had anticipated this. And it was a, it was very exciting time, really like so many clicks. How is that possible? And then of course, then we knew we had to step up our game and very quickly evolve the system into something that can uh, deal with the demand. And we, we immediately understood, wow, we really hit a, a gold mine here. And that's something that really can grow to something big. And of course it did. I think we did underestimate the desire of the public to get involved with this type of subject. I mean, it were, or this type of project. I mean, I think it was the combination of sort of a digital project you could do in your spare time while looking at some wonderful things in the universe. And I don't think we truly understood that this was going to go as fast and as crazy as it did. So as Daniel said, we were not in the first couple of days ready for the interest. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. It's 70,000 classifications in one hour on day two, 8 million classifications submitted in the first 10 days. And in the first year, you've got 100,000 volunteers inspecting more than 900,000 galaxies. It's phenomenal. I mean, has citizen science ever been done on that scale before? Or is this really a kind of a step forward in the whole notion of citizen science? Yeah, I think it really was it's a new era in, in citizen science, clearly. I mean, I think you had these SETI projects where people from home were contributing to to search for extraterrestrial life. But it was much low key. I think it was much more based on also spreading wide you know, across the globe, some people here and there clicking somewhere. Galaxy Zoo was a completely different pace. It was obviously, it was not actually confined to the UK. It was it, it was international, but of course there were lots of users in the UK. It just um, contributing enormously <laughs> to it. And then of course, if you have uh, 10,000 users with this rate of classifications, you get use of loads of classifications straight away. It was absolutely amazing. Although space projects had sought to use citizen input for science before, Galaxy Zoo took things to a whole new level, 
stretching across international boundaries to the final frontier. So what was it that drove so many members of the public to play their part? Whenever we've done surveys, whenever we've gone and asked the Zooniverse the, or the Galaxy Zoo a public and said, why are you doing this? The number one reason is to make a difference. You know, they really want to engage in the science and make a difference to science. And I think that surprised us as well. You know, they, there's a lot of people out there that will give their time to advance science. And I think that's one of the lovely stories to come out of Galaxy Zoo. So given that this is something there where someone can log on to the website and, and they can get classifying these images from a point of, of really zero knowledge, how does that actually work? What do you, What is it that they're presented with? How do you explain what you want them to do? We have a tutorial. So obviously that has evolved from early days in Galaxy Zoo. It was relatively simple. We took care of explaining well in simple terms with example pictures, um, exactly what they have to do. It became a little bit more complex later on, but at the beginning, they're really, really simple. Actually, the very first question when we did Galaxy Zoo was only just, is this, you know, a roundish galaxy or does it have spiral arms? And it's just that sometimes the images, you know, sometimes it was a bit tricky to see, so you need to look at it carefully. You're shown a pattern and all you have to do is to recognize it. And to, I think that's what Bob said, that obviously people learned about it. So in that way, they became um, experts and they they, they 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 even read about it um, uh, um, uh, afterwards so 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 starting off from very simple pattern recognition in fact they started to become you know astrophysicists what was also amazing I think in this context was that the users developed their own platform so we had then we provided a forum and they started to discuss uh, images so they completely almost I don't want to say decoupled but they they created their own a space where they were actually having discussions, semi-scientific, about, you know, what what's going on there. And, oh, and there were quite a few interesting objects also that were discovered that way, that looked strange. And we wrote uh, proper science papers on things that, you know, armchair astronomers had discovered uh, from the living room. So that was really amazing. That's brilliant. People started researching on their own. They, they went off and started reading stuff. As Daniel said, they made up their own forum and they started talking to each other. I mean, it was amazing to watch this, that suddenly this whole community sort of blossomed in front of us. In the pre-social media age, space provided armchair astronomers and academics alike with a common language and purpose and Galaxy Zoo continues to have a vibrant social media community today. It's at Galaxy Zoo, by the way. Today, you might think a computer or AI program would be better adapted to the sorts of tasks involved in classifying the shapes of galaxies. But when Galaxy Zoo launched, this was far from the case. Bob explained. Computer-based algorithms struggle to visually inspect digital images of galaxies as accurately as people. Why is that? It's tough. It's hard. You know, if I was to show you a picture of an elliptical, it would look like a rugby ball. And if I was to show you a picture of a spiral arm, a spiral galaxy, it would look like a fried egg with lines drawn on the yolk of the egg. Now, today, you know, you could probably give this to DeepMind in Google and it would figure it out. But, you know, 20 years ago, it couldn't. I mean, the processing power, we didn't have the processing power. We didn't have the algorithms. We did, you know, it was, it, it, we have to, we, we have to remember what life was but like before everybody had computing power at their fingertips. And, you know, that was, it, we, we were dealing with 
the lack of resource to do this using a machine and the algorithms at the time you wouldn't trust to do it anyway. This to us as a human is a trivial, does it have a spiral arm? Does it not? Does it look like a rugby ball shape or does it not? Asking a computer to do that to the same accuracy as you and I could visually do it was impossible back in 20 years ago. There's a lot of artificial intelligent approaches that have been also be informed by Galaxy Zoo classifications. So then you start to make those communicate. But one of the reasons why Galaxy Zoo is so powerful, or this, this idea of using the human brain, of course, the human brain remains the most powerful computer we can ever dream of having, the kind of patterns we can recognize and we can process with our brain is far superior over, over any kind of computer we can produce. And the other thing is the computer, as much as artificial intelligence, machine learning is advanced, they can only be as good as you train them. So they can only recognize what you tell them to recognize. While our brain is recognizing things it didn't know before. People found very peculiar objects that triggered scientific publications, lots of really interesting discussion in and outside the scientific community. Machine learning would have never picked it up. It would have put it somewhere um, and it would have been lost. So it's, I'm really glad we, we, we insisted on, on using the human brain. I think we have helped in having a more mature conversation around the labeling of data that will be used to advance the next generation of machine learning algorithms. The insights from Galaxy Zoo not only help generate data for understanding our universe, it also helped with the development of programs, strategies and more subtle AI to fit with the human interface. It's pretty remarkable to think how much technology and programming has progressed in the past couple of decades through this process of human-computer feedback. So when you've classified bundles and bundles of data, what do you do with it? We actually made our Galaxy Zoo data available, and that sparked other generations of people working with our data. One of the very early things, and I'm very proud, I think Portsmouth was at the vanguard of this, and this is the work... Daniel I and, and other colleagues at Portsmouth did, is we started saying to ourselves, well, actually, there's a quite interesting problem here. It had been known before, but the wealth of data that we were giving, both by the zoo and also by the Sloan, was that it was clear that there was sort of this almost dichotomy of galaxies. You could either separate them with color, so you could either say blue-red, or you could separate them spiral arm, rugby bullshit. And the general consensus at the time was that those two dichotomies were this, roughly the same. So blue spiral arms, red rugby balls. Well, quite a lot of work that I think both Daniel and I are very proud of that we've done from the Galaxy Zoo has been to demonstrate that while in general that's right, there is a significant fraction, sort of 15 to 20%, where that doesn't apply. So you could have things like red spirals. And you can have things called blue rugby ball shapes. And those, interestingly, I think Daniel would agree, where the zoo really highlighted and where we've spent quite a lot of our scientific time figuring out now what is color telling us and why is it different from the morphology of the galaxy? And those are the sorts of questions that are still being asked today. We also, uh, in, in Galaxy Zoo, eventually we got around to putting Hubble data in so, you know, the famous Hubble, which gave us the same sort of detail about these galaxies as we had sort of in the nearby universe, we suddenly had all that information 
about the faraway universe. And there was a huge debate at the time about the emergence of these spiral structures in galaxies. You know, when did these disks appear? When did uh, the spiral structures in the history of the universe, when did they appear? And the work that we've done in that regard clearly shows that as you go back in time, the number of galaxies with these spiral disk-like features disappears. I think that was certainly one of those sort of hidden things where we could see that in the data. And I would say again, we could see it in the data, all right? The humans could see it. And the fact that we could see it as when we combined Hubble with Sloan and with our community, actually, I think that's one one of those hidden results that really doesn't get the publicity it deserves. The other really key addition that Sloan gives us is that also, because we have so many, we can actually look at questions like, where in the universe are these galaxies located? And that actually matters a lot in our quest to understand how galaxies form and evolve. And we call this galaxy environment. So is a galaxy clustered with many others around it? Is a galaxy isolated? The studies we have made with galaxies, in fact, showed things like these roundish galaxies, they tend to sit more in environments where they have lots of other galaxies around them. We are sure is is connected to the fact that galaxies collide and that makes them round, so they lose their spiral arm structure. So classifying those enormous amounts of data from the Sloan images and combining them with those of Hubble has given enormous insights into the formation of galaxies and how they interrelate. Galaxy Zoo began to evolve into different strands of analysis as more and more communities formed. Soon enough, the approaches were applied beyond the field of astronomy. Professor Karen Masters was working at Portsmouth at the time and realised that the insights into how people could work together to gather data en masse would be invaluable for other large-scale scientific research projects. She was starting to, with colleagues at Oxford, starting to look at how you could take what we'd learnt And I think key here, it isn't just that we learnt sort of the mechanics of doing it. So it wasn't just that, oh, we can take a bunch of images of penguins and get someone to click some buttons. It was actually we'd learnt about the psychology of how to engage with a community. We have some users who who are just classifying huge amount of data across all sorts of disciplines. And that means they're sitting for hours at the computer looking at images that look very similar and look for the difference. And that is just amazing. It's, it's wonderful how, how I think we, we are getting this focus back in people. So that's yeah. clearly uh, some kind of change of behavior, I think, compared to what how social media otherwise are uh, used at the moment. There's education uh, links on the Zooniverse uh, pages, but um, uh, we have used it a lot in our outreach programs. Uh, we've been going out to schools in particular, where you talk about um, astronomy is, is, is very welcome and, and kids and adults alike, they're incredibly fascinated by the subject. And of course, uh, we have used Galaxy Zoo a lot there and, and Zooniverse later to get across our messages, to, to publicize it. We were clearly you know, inspiring young people to go through that and engage with science in that way. To Daniel and Bob, the big takeaway from Zooniverse is the way it engenders a spirit of curiosity in so many scientific minds today, and hopefully for many years to come. I I think in in terms of researchers' behaviour or or approach to science, where clearly something like Galaxy Zoo and Zooniverse contribute to, is to remind us of the very essence of what we are driven from and what our job is, which is curiosity and interest in detail 
and complexity. The essence of research is that every answer will trigger more questions. That's the whole point. As a researcher, you should never be satisfied by sending out a quest, having an answer, and then you go home and job done. It will always, you always want more, of course, go deeper into it. I think, you know, we're in danger of thinking science has the answer to every question. Well, it doesn't. And I think the Zooniverse demonstrates across a whole variety of disciplines, there's still stuff to discover. And if you're curious, you can go and look at it and you can go and find something. It just goes to show how collaboration between institutions, researchers and enormous amounts of public passion can even today drive forward some of the biggest innovations in science and remind us that we are all still here to ask questions. You can follow Zooniverse and maybe join a project yourself at zooniverse.org. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to the website port.ac.uk. We'll be back next Thursday with another story of how work that's happening here is changing all of our lives for good. I mean, many of these items are quite ephemeral in nature, so many of them are kind of would be made and gifted to a friend and maybe kept or maybe lost. So it's kind of quite fleeting and quite a lot of the stories are quite personal. Catch you then.